As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash mpn to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash mpn. Terms and conditions apply. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm pleased to introduce you to Alma Lynn's Canefield. Alma succumbed to debilitating stage fright as a young performer, which left her voice silent. However, rather than remain devastated at the effect of her fear, she transformed her fright into her life's calling and became a specialist in the psychology of the performing artist. She joins me today to talk about her life and her new book, Hamlet's Mirror, Reaching Your Performance Potential on Stage and Off. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Alma. Thank you, Mike. Alma, I'm happy to have you here, and I'm going to ask you the question I ask all of the authors who join uh, my show, which is, where does your story as an author begin? Uh, I think when I moved from St. Louis to New York about 42 years ago, um, I work exclusively with performing artists. And that's all artists, um, dancers, actors, musicians, vocal artists, and I even worked with a clown. And um, when I got to New York, I thought um, that my practice would have a lot of competition, that it was a natural mecca. but I found that um, I had no competition, that I was the only practice 
in New York and perhaps in the country, I later found out, that had a psychotherapy life coaching um, profession for performers only. And I thought, I'm going to start writing about this because if I'm the only practice like that, there's not going to be any research or much research, and indeed there wasn't. And I also had theories about stage fright and uh, how loss in a performer's life affected a lawyer. I had a lot of thinking. So I just began writing 30 years ago. And actually, I'm just now beginning to think of myself as a writer because I write every week a post for Facebook and LinkedIn. And I'm beginning to allow myself to know that I love writing. So I'm learning a lot about myself sure. as an author. Yeah, well, I'm curious to, to know what you've learned. But before I do, I, I do want to go back in time a little bit because, you know, you, you have a story which prompted you to, to pursue this as a career. Um, so can you tell me a little bit more about that, like what, what, what the spark was that, that thrust you into um, your career? Um, the stage. Uh I was on the stage uh, when I was about 19 years old, thinking that I was pretty hot stuff. And I was preparing to sing, spotlight, everything. And I heard the chords of the music, and I opened my mouth and nothing would come out. And it was the most humiliating, uh, devastating experience. And I left the profession. I had a fight or flight response, no fight, only flight. Mm -hmm. And there was no one in New York or in St. Louis, which I eventually retreated back to, um, who knew anything about the lifestyle, the motivations, the uh, effect of rejection. Um, on performing artists. So I went back to school and not that there were any courses on that, but I got a degree in social work and I, I was in St. Louis, I opened a practice and treated some performing artists in St. Louis and uh, married and had kids, and when my kids graduated high school, beat it back to New York 
where I opened my practice as a specialist in the psychology of the performing artist. So just going back to that, that time in your life when you were 19 years old, was that the first time you were on stage or was that the first time stage fright really took hold of you? Uh, that was about the first time stage fright crippled me. Um, I, I had auditioned for some major shows and had some bouts with the casting couch and that left me pretty paralyzed. Um, I really didn't know how to navigate that. So I ran, um, I think I didn't have the fortitude then, the emotional knowledge of what it took to perform. Um, you have to know what you're getting into and how to navigate the waters. Mm. Uh, Alvin Ailey, um, the tide his dance, um, just have to go with the tide. Um, yeah. So you mentioned, you know, the term casting couch, uh, which is a term, you know, people who are sort of not in that world may not be familiar with. Um, when you say that, are, are, do you mean that, you know, you were, people tried to take advantage of you sexually oh, yeah. or? Absolutely. Absolutely. You'll get an audition and come into my office and lie down. Wow. And it still goes on. Yeah, it, even even in a in a post Harvey Weinstein era. Oh yes. Interesting. So you um you go back to the Midwest, um and, and I love the fact that you come back to New York, you know, in, in round two when you're when you're sort of growing your your practice. Um what have you learned over the years about, you know, why stage fright might be crippling some performers that, and, you know, I, I'm someone who is somewhat familiar with being on stage. I, I've done standup comedy all around Connecticut and in New York city. And every time before I, I go up, even though I know what I'm going to say, and I, I, I have a very, you know, I've done it a, a bunch of times. I, there's always butterflies. You're always nervous. You're always sort of sweating, but that's sort of a different you know, reaction than what you would call crippling, you know, stage fright. So what have you learned about the topic? Well, it seems to me that you get excited. And your form of excitement are these butterflies, your stomach. Do you feel it in your stomach? Sure, yeah. And you perspire. That's your process. And without it, uh, it revs you up. It motivates you. Does your heart beat faster? Absolutely. Okay. Uh, that's, you handle that. Do you, do you stand up? Yes. Okay. Um, for some people, it sounds like you your body is, um, you can tolerate that. Your thinking 
is I'm going to be okay. I just have to get on the stage. Yeah? Yes. Okay. So it's the way you think about it. Uh, sometimes those physiological symptoms increase when your thoughts are, oh, I can't stand this, I'm going to die, and that increases the adrenaline and cortisol so that you can't um, function. You, you have actually befriended <laughs> your unusual heart rate and um, after after you perform what happens uh, well depends on whether or not I had a good show <laughs> oh, what happens if, you if I have a good show if I have a good show um, I I feel fantastic as if I you know I, I'm a runner so I experience a runner's high when I have really long runs that are very good. I feel like that. I have a hard time falling asleep afterwards because I, I'm, I'm elated. Um, if I, adrenaline's so high. That's yes. also a physiological reaction. Yeah. Um, if it's a bad show because I've gotten in my head or if the crowd and I, if I, if I, didn't, if I didn't succeed in making a good relationship with the crowd that night, um, I will, I, I don't want to say self-loathe, but I, I will, you know, I will say, you know, okay, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm never going to do this again. Why do I put myself through this? Um, and then somebody usually talks me down and says, you know, you weren't as bad as you think you were. Um, but what you've just done is you found some ways in which maybe you could improve. Um, so th I try, just try to change my thinking to, to say, okay, well, it didn't, it didn't go well. Here's why, and this is what I can do better next time. Yes, so you learn from it. Um, in, in my book, I have a mantra. When you change what you're thinking, you will change what you're doing. And I live by that. I dance to it. <laughs> I do everything I can to shift my mind mindset because... When you have a bad show, and it probably is bad because you don't connect, um, not bad, not as good as, um, it doesn't feel good. And you can go down a spiral that makes you flee. So you take on a fight or flight response, um, which includes a lot of self-loathing unless you change your thinking and then you learn what you can do better. And when you take it as a learning experience, what happens? Well, when I, when I do that, I, I, first of all, I, I stop feeling negative about myself. Um, but also I, you know, I, the next time I go up, I will, you know, hopefully apply what, what I've learned. Yeah. Um, to, to, you know, to, to the next set or, or whatever it is. Yeah, you go up and say, hey, remember me? I flopped the last time. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the other thing I've learned um, to do uh, when, I, when, when a joke doesn't land is acknowledge it, you know, up front, you know, on stage and say, well, I think I'll take this one out of the set or, hey, that didn't fly. Yeah. Um, 
just to, you know, a little self-deprecation, you know, does kind of go a long way to, uh, to, to build trust with the audience. Yeah. 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 You seem to love it. (laughs) Well, I do. It's, um, it's something I started doing a while ago. Um, and, uh, right before the pandemic and it was a good, it was a good outlet for me for, for self-expression. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, you know, it, putting, putting myself in these situations that, you know, a lot of people dread it. You know, some people come up to me and say, I can't, you know, you're so brave for doing this. I'm like, for doing what? Tr- trying to make somebody laugh? I mean, that's not bravery. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going into war, but, um, it does also help with my with my regular with my my other career, which is as a marketing professional. I, I do a lot of presentations, I'm meeting new people all the time, and just helping me build a um, a skill set that I actually take into my my uh, my day job, so to speak. I bet. <laughs> well, t- tell me more about Hamlet's Mirror, reaching your performance potential on stage and off. I you know I know you. you You've been writing for 30 years or so. You're kind of giving yourself permission to call yourself a writer now. But tell me about when you started writing this book and sort of the, the, the path to publication for you. Uh, I started, as I said, 30 years ago um, because I had some very definite thoughts about stage fright, about a curiosity that many performers experience early loss, whether it's actual or figurative. And that, by figurative, I mean they may not have a good fit with their caretaker, their primary caretaker, Uh, empathy, was missing in their early years and uh, an art form, be it dance, um, music, a lot of musicians um, turn to music. Um, The vocal arts come a little later and sometimes acting comes a little later. But many actors act to find themselves, ironically, when they have to give themselves to their art form. Um, And those two uh, concepts had me very interested, and I started writing about it. And sure enough... um, I found a lot of data that did substantiate my thinking. And um, I just kept finding, uh, people kept asking me, are performers different than other people? And I concluded, yes. Mm. I, I've often thought that myself, but t- tell me in what ways do you think performers are different and, and why do you suppose that is? Well, um, they know who they want to, many, 
I would say, oh, this is just, this isn't a, a uh, testable. I mean, I'd have to talk to all the performers in the world or that many, and I haven't. Um, many know who they want to be and what they want to do by seven years old, eight years old. And I say, do plumbers know that? Did you know what you wanted to do? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, I thought I knew I was going to be um, a pilot. Yes. Or or a fireman, depending on the day of the week. Yes. And, <laughs> or a police officer. Yes. And of one of those three things, did you practice being a fireman or a pilot? Did you go out on your airplane when you were seven or eight? Uh, no, I did not. Okay. I, I did a lot of role playing, though. Yes. But these people actually have teachers go into practice rooms buy hugely expensive instruments. Those are musicians. Dancers start when they're three years old in very uh, classical dancers with very strict teachers. Um, I mean, their parents' lives are turned inside out. I've got to get my kid to ballet class. They can't be late. Madame will be really upset. Um, I mean, it's a whole lifestyle. Very early on in life. And I think that skews, for better or for worse, who knows, it comes out often in therapy therapy room, uh, psychosocial development. Yeah. Um, I've always thought that perhaps performers either have, um, they over-index on a need for validation, some kind of external validation, um, maybe tied to feeling unseen younger in life and then wanting to be seen. Um, what's, your, what's your take on that? Um, acknowledgement you're talking about, I think. Yes. Mm. Uh, well, I don't know. I didn't. It depends in my book, I've identified um, four personality types that I, over my years of practice, have kind of seen patterns that fell into these personality types. And I would say that was true in the first two. Um, which are not successful people inside or out. I talk a lot about performance potential. Um, it's the self-absorption that 
I think would demand a lot of acknowledgement, a lot of praise. Um, but I don't know if that's not true for anyone who lives on fight or flight patterns. And that's what these two uh, personality types do. Mm. Uh, and take things extremely personally. I would say that's more uh, what I discovered. That if they, if you blink at them cross-eyed, they take it personally. So what you're talking about in terms of recognition, applause, whatever, is really taking things personally that, so that that's the only thing left if you're going to be in their company. Yeah. Did that make sense to you? It, it absolutely makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that insight. I, and I'm curious, you know, you mentioned before when we were talking that you learned a lot about yourself kind of going through the writing process. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> what are some of the things that you learned about yourself? Um, I learned everything I wrote from the people I work with. Uh, and, you know, I'm supposed to be the, the expert. <laughs> no. People, you come to therapy, and I listen. And if I'm a good listener, it'll be a good therapy. But I'm not the wise old owl. Um, therapy is about connecting and listening and not being the expert. <laughs> if that makes any sense, that might really turn people off from therapy who say, I want advice, I want answers. Everybody has their own answers. That's the good news. And for people who want to be fed, it's the bad news. Um, but it really is wonderful news. We know ourselves if only we let us. Yeah. Um, in terms of becoming a better listener, um, I, I've been batting this idea in my head that writers could become better writers if they became better listeners. Um, and I'm curious as to what you think about that notion. Writers can become better. Well, I think they can take in more of the world. Um, they're, uh, yeah, I guess if you're writing about nature, which I know nothing about, basically, um, you can listen to the beauty
in different ways. I guess it depends on what you're writing about. I think listening is as important a skill as speaking, and we're not taught it. We're, we're taught to hear, but our own agendas are rattling through our minds. But listening and putting our own thinking and feeling away, we're not taught that. Yeah. Oh, yes, I think writing writers could be, yeah. What would you say um, to somebody who comes to you and says, you know, I, I want to do X, you know, I want to be a better stage performer, but I'm just so nervous all the time, or just the thought of going up makes me sick to my stomach. Um, so they've got this conflicting desire, right? They, they want to do this, but their, their body is giving them a, a different reaction, um, how do you how do you help that person? I ask them about their history because their body is talking hyster- historically. Uh, I and in the stage fright thing, I think stage fright is unresolved uh, trauma. Uh, issues that are triggered by something that goes on in the music, in the script, in a step that the performer associates and, and can freeze and goes back to that and leaves the moment of performance and Uh, everybody has that. So if they just know that's going to happen and really put the notion that it has anything to do really with the stage and we all have these times, we could be at the grocery store, we can be triggered at the grocery store, they're going to be triggered on stage and, uh, and not all they have to do, but what they have to do is resolve what triggers them and not worry about the stage, uh, kind of expect it, um, that it's part of the uh, process. Get used to it and not be so terrified of it because it really doesn't have anything to do with the stage. It has yeah. to do with your personal triggers. So I'm curious to know, after helping, you know, doing a lot of research and after helping so many people sort of reach their potential, did you ever try and go back on stage yourself? Uh, I did. But I found this so much more suited for me. So it's almost like what 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 drew you to the stage? Um, it didn't really hold the same. Um, I don't want to say meaning, but the same value as helping people. And me, yeah. I just love my work. Yeah, 
And when, yeah, when I got the Juilliard position and was uh, given the privilege to work with these young people uh, and work with my own private practice, that was just amazing because I was working with people of all ages and stages of their careers. And uh, I just loved it. I couldn't keep up both for more than 10 or 12 years, but because my practice was growing so much, but I still do see people from Juilliard. I'm very close to Juilliard. When were you at Juilliard? Um, I started their um, uh, counseling services in uh, 1986. Okay. Um, I'm sure you met a few notable people during that period of time. You sure I what? I'm saying, I'm sorry, I'm sure you've met a few notable people during that period of time, um, and without I, no naming names here, um, just given the nature of your work, but um, it seems like uh, an amazing uh, career that you've had, and, um, you know, very, yeah. Just, I've been so blessed, and I don't use that in a religious way, I, I mean it in a spiritual way, but I just really feel fortunate. And we're all fortunate because we are the benefactors of your knowledge uh, because you've collected it in a book, Hamlet's Mirror, Reaching Your Performance Potential on Stage and Off. I'm going to tell you, if people listening to this interview would like to buy that book, where could they go? Um, they can go to, it's been out now for about three months and um, they can go to Amazon, and they can go to my website, um, elmalinscanefield.com, and uh, that'll tell people I'm terrible at marketing. Oh, you're a marketer! <laughs> um, and they can go to Amazon and Barnes & Noble, and I'm hearing it's a, it's at other places, um, and I have to get better at marketing. <laughs> oh no, you're doing you're doing just fine. Thank you. Uh, is there anything else you'd like to share with the audience, Elma? Uh, that this has been really a lovely interview, and I'd love to come hear your your uh, stand up. <laughs> well, maybe I'll get a date in St. Louis. Um, I come to, uh, to half time. Well, there you go. We'll we'll find a place in New York and we'll uh, we we'll bring some you. smiles we to the faces. You. Only if you come. Would Would you come on stage with me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, see, I'm a ham at heart. <laughs> we could do a little. We could do a little improv. Yes, we could do a little song and dance. Improv is the greatest. I think improv is so creative and so therapeutic. I just love improv. Well, when you are in um, when you are in town, I have an improv teacher who I'm sure would love to talk to you. Oh, so um, fabulous! Thank you. Very good. 
Well, Alma, thank you so much for joining me on Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Uncorking is lovely. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story. 